Well, last week we looked at the topic of truth, and you remember that there, uh, in, in our study time last week, we, we focused on the question that Pilate asked Jesus in the trial. As Jesus stood before Pilate and answered some of his questions, Jesus stated that he had come to give testimony to the truth, and that elicited from Pilate that cynical question, what is truth? What is truth? And that question that Pilate asked should have been and was painfully obvious. The truth was standing right there in front of Pilate, and he had the audacity to ask, what is truth? It is a vital question, a question that every thinking person must answer, but there's also a related issue very much connected to and inseparable from the discussion of truth. How we define truth, how we think about truth and its impact in our thinking is very closely, in fact, inseparably related to the concept of authority. What is authority? Or a a better question to even ask is, by what authority? When you exercise your thoughts, when you form convictions, when you decide what to do, you make decisions, the question that is so often not asked but must be is this, by what authority? Well, that's our focus for this evening, and let's start off by defining authority. What do we mean when we use the term authority? Let's define it in a general sense. What is authority? One theologian, Millard Erickson, writes this, By authority, we mean the right to command belief or action. The right to command belief or action. Very straightforward, simple definition of authority. Another theologian writes this, Authority itself means that right or power to command action or compliance or to determine belief or custom, expecting obedience from those under authority, and in turn giving responsible account for the claim to or right of power. That's what, that, that's what authority is. Authority is that right to command belief, to command action. Now, if we relate it to the concept of truth, think of it in this way. If truth is that which corresponds to reality, we, we defined truth that way last week, truth is that which corresponds to reality. If you have true thoughts, your thoughts correspond to reality. And, and generally speaking, if you would define truth as simple as that, you would have a lot of agreement in, in the culture today. Yeah, okay, truth is that which corresponds to reality. Who can really deny that? But the issue then is, who gets to determine reality? Who gets to explain reality? If truth corresponds to reality, who defines reality? And as soon as we raise that question, we are dealing with the issue of authority. Authority. Thus, the concept of authority is integral to any discussion of truth and the mind. 
You can kind of think of it this way. The, the truth is, is to the mind what oxygen is to the body. The mind cannot truly function as it was intended to function if it is deprived of truth. And the same thing with our bodies. If it's, our bodies are deprived of oxygen, they die. The mind, deprived of truth, will no longer function as it was intended to function. It will die. Authority, however, can be compared to gravity. We need gravity in order to live and exist on this planet. It's what keeps us in place. And we can think of authority in that way too. It it keeps everything in its proper place when that authority is the correct authority. It is essential to our minds. Authority is so essential because authority is that to which we appeal in order to justify a belief, a choice, an attitude, an action, a whole worldview. Now, a lot of us don't go to this second level of thinking. We, we know we think. You know, you, you know that maxim, I think, therefore I am. But let's think a little beyond that. Why do you think the way you think? What justifies your beliefs? What justifies your thoughts? What justifies your attitudes? What justifies your actions? What justifies your entire world view? To what do you appeal to substantiate those things? Ultimately, the authority, our authority, is that which we point to, that which we appeal to, in answering the big question, why? Why? Why do you believe that? Why do you think that way? Why do you have that attitude? Why do you have that conduct? Now again, most men don't think that second line of thinking. They just know they think. They just know they act. They just know they have convictions. But they never stop and ask the question, by what standard? By what authority? Why do I hold that conviction? The authority for justifying belief or action is sometimes openly acknowledged and other times it's implicitly assumed and sometimes it's, it's, not even, it's, it's not even acknowledged and yet it is always there. There is always some kind of authority that you are using to justify your thoughts, to justify why you think the way that you do, why you have those opinions, why you relate to others that way, why you relate to your wife that way, why you relate to your children that way, why you relate to your parents that way. There is always operating at the foundation an assumption of an authority to which you appeal to grant you the justification to believe or to do or to act or to relate that way. Or put it in other terms, think of it this way. When we stand at a fork in the road, and we come across these all the time, moments of decision. We come across moments of decisions hundreds of times a day. Some of them are major forks in the road. Others 
are smaller, perhaps less consequential, but there are always these moments of decision, decisions that we make that relate to truth and falsehood, decisions that we make related to what's right and wrong, decisions that we make related to what is beautiful and what is not. And the the thing to which we appeal in the moment of that decision at that fork in the road, that is our authority. So it raises the question, what is our authority? What justifies our beliefs, our actions, our thought life? Every thought that you entertain, what justifies you to entertain that thought? And like I said, our problem is, is that we are lazy, we do not use our minds that we should, we do not ask the question, why do I have this thought? Why am I entertaining this thought? What's the authority for this thought? And then we go on to reap all the negative consequences from not thinking that second line of thought. Now, when it comes down to authorities, just look at the world around us. Back in 2014, Pew Research Group did a study of thousands of adults across the country and asked this question, what is the source of guidance that you use when deciding between right and wrong? What is the source of guidance you use in deciding between right and wrong? That is a question of authority. What authority do you appeal to to make choices? 33% said religion. Now that isn't necessarily a good thing in that it all depends on what they mean by religion. 11% said they rely upon philosophy or reason. 45% said they make a choice as to what is right or wrong based on common sense. We're going to talk about this in a moment. That's intuition. 9% said they rely upon science. 3% said they don't know. Probably this, this poll is all skewed in that people really don't even think about what they appeal to in the process of decision-making. Well, that said, let's think through this then tonight. Let's think through the concept of authority, and let's think of the options that people can appeal to in the making of decisions, in deciding between truth and falsehood, between right and wrong, between beautiful and ugly. What authorities are appealed to In the world today, well, let's look first of all at at authority as determined by the world. It's important to understand, first of all, how the unbelieving person thinks. And all of us have been in that category, so we can speak from experience on this. We can relate to what our lives were like at one point, and we can answer this question what what does the unbeliever appeal to in his decision making, in the justification of? of his thoughts, of his attitudes, of his convictions, of his values. What does he appeal to? Well, we all know that the world, the unbelieving world, the world under the prince of the power of this air, the father of lies, the world is at war with authority. And we've certainly seen that in the past couple of years, very vividly demonstrated. Now, this is not something that is new. We go back to the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3, and the very first temptation that came to the human race, to Adam and to Eve, specifically to Eve first, by the serpent, was a question related to 
authority. As the serpent tempted Eve and asked, has God really said? And then, not only that, but the issue of authority really comes to the forefront in verse 4, where the serpent himself states to Eve, you shall not surely die. Completely rejecting the authority of God as given in the commandment to Adam and Eve not to eat of the fruit. Now that scenario then has played out day after day throughout all of human history within humanity. The rebellion against authority, the questioning, the skepticism, the doubt against the authority of God. Psalm 10 verse 4 summarizes the unbelieving mindset very well when the psalmist writes this, the wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek God. All his thoughts are, there is no God. There is no God. You look at Psalm 14 verse 1. You can look at Psalm 53 verse 1. You can look at Romans chapter 3 verses 10 to 12 where these words are quoted. And it is the unbeliever who says in his heart, there is no God. That is at its face value. That is a rebellion against the authority of God. Proverbs 12 verse 15 deals with it in the context of everyday life and, and, and wisdom and and foolishness, and defines the fool this way, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. The way of the fool is, is right in his own eyes. That's what describes the fool. He's always right. He's his own authority. He gives himself counsel. But you notice the wise man is he who listens to counsel, who looks outside of himself for instruction. In the New Testament, we could look at many other instances, but one that catches our attention is how the Apostle Paul describes the, the, the future, how Paul describes the last days. And he says this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, and notice as he describes the state of humanity, notice how much of this is related to rebellion against divine external authority. Paul writes, but realize this. But in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God." You look at that and say, well, if that was what Paul thought was coming, it it certainly has arrived. We look at what is around us in the culture, and it fulfills this to a T. But understand this. When we talk about society's attack, the world's revolt against authority, understand this. It is not an attack on the very concept of authority, but on the location of authority or the identity of the authority. You see, the, the war on authority is a war against external, transcendent authority. That's where the war 
is being fought, and it is a war that is being waged in defense of what we would say would be internal or subjective authority. So it's not that our a culture wants to do away with authority. They'll, they'll talk much about that these days. It's common in the woke context to always be against power structures. Well, that kind of language is pure hypocrisy because what is going on there? The desire is, yes, let's destroy the power structures, but I want the power. And even in anarchy, there is authority. It's just that all the authority has been taken into an individual's hands in this radical autonomy, and every man can be a tyrant. That is, that is tyranny. That is anarchy. And so the war against authority, and we must understand this, that this is at the heart of our sin. It's at the heart of the unregenerate man's state It is a battle against the authority that God has inherently. It is a battle against transcendent authority. It is a battle against the idea of looking outside of ourselves to justify our beliefs, to establish our actions, and instead it is a battle in order to take that into our own hands and decide for ourselves. We want the authority. Now when you look at our culture today, and you say, well, how does this take place? What, what is the modus operandi of this? And how, how, can I, how can I observe it in the world? And I want to give you three ways in which our world, specifically the culture in which we live, the secular culture in which we live, three ways in which the modern man or the postmodern man, however you want to define him, seeks to uh, to to, to uh, rebel against God's authority and and arrest it for himself. Three ways. First of all, by appealing to intuition. By appealing to intuition. So again, the whole issue is, to what do you appeal to justify your belief? To what do you appeal to justify the thinking that you're doing right now, the thoughts that you're entertaining, your lifestyle. To what do you appeal? That is a most basic question that we must always be considering. So what does the unbeliever do? He does not want to recognize an authority outside of himself. He wants to locate that authority inside. And so one of the ways he does this is by looking to his own intuition. We can call these intuitionists. Intuitionists. Intuitionists attribute ultimate authority, that is the right to determine reality and what it means, to one's own impulses, to one's own feelings, to one's own gut. Intuition is appealed to as the judge for determining reality, specifically Reality according to that which is felt or apprehended. That's intuition. Now, sometimes intuition can be somewhat germane. You know, the appeal to common sense. Go back to that, that uh, poll that I showed you, the statistics. And 33% or so of people said they look to common sense in order to make their decisions between right and wrong, between the good and the, the ugly, or the good and the, the, the wrong, or the 
the beautiful and the ugly. Intuition. Common sense. But when it's taken to its natural end, this reverence for intuition can lead to what we call mysticism. Mysticism. And mysticism is the full-blown form of this kind of intuitionism where the person believes that all truth is internal to himself. He has the spark of the divine internally. And he, by looking to himself, looking inside of himself, apart from any kind of external point of reference, he can find the truth. Look into your heart. That is the motto of the intuitionist. Truth is intuitive, something you feel, something you experience. And I'm not talking about sensory experience. We'll talk about that in just a few moments. But it's just something that is there, that existential experience. It cannot be put into words because it defies that. It's just your intuition. Now, when we talk about intuition... Uh, and mysticism, there was a famous uh, mystic by the name of Meister Eckhart, a German guy. A lot of bad ideas have come from Germany. I can say that because I've got German background, but lots of bad ideas have come from Germany, and this is one of them. Meister Eckhart, famous mystic living in the 13th, 14th centuries. And he said this, and notice how he how he sees within himself, within his own being, this window into the divine, this window into the supernatural, this window into existential reality. He said this, the eye through which I see God is the same eye through which God sees me. My eye and God's eye are one eye, one seeing, one knowing, one love. This kind of approach stresses this direct encounter with God it, it, it builds on a theology of experiential encounters in the darkness. It, stretches, it stresses spirituality, and you'll often hear that today. And in very, very popular books in Christian bookstores, you can see them. They're, they're everywhere, these mystical, intuitive books that emphasize spiritual formation. It's a look within, a look to the divine spark. A look to the truth and the goodness and, and, and the reality that is inside of you. And then from that, extrapolating and building your whole belief system. In this case, if we say that truth is what corresponds to reality, if we can agree to that, the intuitionist would say that it is my intuition that defines reality And it is also my intuition that describes and dictates truth. And so if anything is true, it has to correspond. It has to be verified by my intuition. And that is very popular in in our culture today. And, And understand this, this is a temptation for all of us. How many times when we have been faced with a theological question, a question of significance. And and the first impulse we have is not to open our Bibles, not to remember a memory verse that we've committed to our, our, our memories, but to draw upon our gut feeling. It happens regularly. 
And it happens even in the context of small group discussions. It'll happen in the context of Bible studies. A question will be asked and the response is, well, I feel that the the way to understand is this. This verse means to me. It's all this intuitive spirituality. And it is an affront to God. There's a second thing to which the unsaved man will appeal in order to justify his belief, and it is what we call reason. Reason. Now, reason seems harmless enough. We all want to be reasoning beings. We even call ourselves homo sapiens, thinking or reasoning beings. So what's wrong with reason? Well, it's not that there's anything wrong with reason per se. It's what Man does with reason. It's how man locates authority in reason itself. So the rationalist, the rationalist is the one who locates authority in reason. He attributes this ultimate authority, this right to determine what reality is and how reality is to be understood to his own logical processes. Reason According to the rationalist, the one who is rebelling against the external authority of God and locating the authority in himself, the the rationalist believes that reason is the starting point. You begin with reason, and reason is also the final test. The final test. If something is true, it cannot possibly challenge or contradict my reasoning. If something is true, it has to be approved by my logical process. That's rationalism. J.I. Packer defines it this way. He says the humanist, the one who believes that man is the center of all things, the humanist asserts that all authority belongs to human reason. And if there be a God... His status is merely that of patron for the truths which reason determines. And so the rationalist will look upon religion and say, okay, religion can exist, but religion is merely a servant for my rational deductions. My conclusions make them into a religion. One famous rationalist John Locke said this. Note how he describes reason. He said this, nothing that is contrary to and inconsistent with the clear and self-evident dictates of reason has a right to be urged or assented to as a matter of faith. Let that sink in. He is essentially saying that nothing can be believed unless it corresponds to what he calls the dictates of reason. In this case, for John Locke, reason is not a channel through which to receive truth. Reason becomes itself the spring, the source of truth. And you could look at it this way. He might say, well, for the Christian, the, the revelation of God, the Bible is a source of truth, but for the rationalist, 
My own mind is the source of truth. Now again, a statement like John Locke may astound us as those who are regularly studying the Word of God and and who understand the Word of God to be the source of truth. But understand this, this rationalism subtly impacts us. It it, it tempts us in, in very subtle ways. It strokes our egos because it's in those moments when we're Confronted with a fork in the road, a, cho- a choice between truth and error, between the, the beautiful and the ugly, between the right and the wrong, we really like to give our reason that final say. This is what makes sense to me. This is what corresponds to my definition of justice, or my definition of love, or my definition of, and, and you fill in the blanks. In this case, since reality is the state of things and truth is the description of things, truth corresponding to reality, in this case, in the case of rationalism, my reason is what determines reality and then dictates truth. That is the rationalist approach. There is a third approach as well, and it is to look to the senses to locate authority in sensory experience. This is experience as well, but it's experience different than intuition. Intuition doesn't really have any external criteria whatsoever. Remember, even intuition can be contradictory. It's just part of your gut. Rationalism is is a focus on on the, the, the mind and the mind as the authority, but the, 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 the appeal to the senses is to look at sensory perception and, and what I can perceive through the senses. That is ultimate authority. That the right to determine what is true, the right to determine reality is given over to man's senses, to what he can taste, what he can touch, what he can see, what he can smell, what he can hear. Now remember, we we talked about secularism last week, and we said that secularism is a worldview that says that reality is only that which is material. Secularism says supernatural, that supernatural transcendent realm, it doesn't have a say in our understanding of reality. Reality is all that is just material. So those who appeal to the senses fit right in to secularism. To define reality according to that which is perceived by the senses. We, we call these empiricists. You've heard that term before, right? Empirical knowledge. Knowledge gained from the senses. Something is heavy or light, and, and so you weigh things. Something is far away or it's near, or something is red or something is black, and, and so you're using your eyes, and, and, and music is this, and so on and so forth because of the ears, and you're basing your whole understanding of reality on your senses, and you're placing authority, the reason for why you believe what you believe solely in what you perceive through those senses. One theologian, Carl Henry, 
explained this category of subjectivity this way. He said, quote, the empiricist, it's the one who bases his authority in the senses, the empiricist rejects the mystic's call for intuitive illumination of transcendent reality. So the, the empiricist says, no, the gut is not enough for me. And the empiricist rejects the philosophical rationalist's call for human reasoning. Instead, he considers sense observation the source of all truth and knowledge. Now, empiricists do not wholly reject reason. We would even say they don't wholly reject intuition, since reason must relate sense perceptions in some orderly way, but all truth is held to be derived from experience. Now, it is this location of authority that is particularly prevalent today. You see it in those signs that say, we believe in science. In fact, it's I just think this is so ironic. You see the mask, you know, with the, I believe in science. And you just ask the question, what science? Which version of it? Which edition? The 1990 edition? The 2019 edition of science? Or the 2020 version of science? Or the 2021 version? Which is it? Because it's all different. How science is rapidly redefining textbooks today with things related to things like vaccination and herd immunity, natural immunity, all of those things are undergoing very rapid and significant redefinitions. And you have somebody putting on a mask saying, I believe in science. And then in a couple of months, we'll see this same mask in the ocean. And that person says they believe in science. One empiricist, William James, considered to be the father of American psychology, he said this, to be radical, an empiricism must neither admit into its constructions any element that is not directly experienced, nor exclude from them any element that is directly experienced. The idea is, is that if you can't experience it, If you can't sense it with your senses, it doesn't belong in the realm of reality or truth. And again, this is not far from us. We bring in vestiges of this worldview into, even into the Christian life from our, our unsaved past. The culture impacts us. We, we give this this hallowed kind of certainty to science, this hallowed kind of reverence to the, the dictates of whatever medical journal is coming out and, 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 and will hold to that until the next edition comes out and disproves it. And that's not to say we're against medicine. Thank God for that ability to sense things the ability to see color, to hear things, and to use that to make civilization better. But the problem comes when we say, now that is the ultimate authority. And when I look to an authority, a justification for why I believe what I believe about the origins of humanity, the origins of this earth, 
or, or the, the, the nature of sin and problems and, and, and so on and so forth. The problem comes when, when we locate our justification for those things, for those convictions within science. So according to the empiricist, my senses, sensory perception, my experience through the sensory world is what determines what is real and therefore determines what is true. Now that is, those three things really define our culture today. And it isn't necessarily even so that you have three distinct categories, the, the uh, mystic and the rationalist and uh, the empiricist. No, these can all even exist within the same person. In fact, they often do, and, and they coincide because of one basic reality. All of these sources exist inside. All of these appeals to authority allow the proponent to look within himself, either to his own mind, to his own senses, or to his own intuition. Describing the state of the culture, one writer writes this, modernity and postmodernity seem to be connected in this way. Modernity essentially locates authority in the human self and postmodernity radicalizes it. That is what describes the unbeliever. Now let's transition and look at authority as it is recognized by the Christian Now, remember, the issue isn't whether we appeal to an authority. You always do, whether you're cognizant of it or not. You can't operate in your thinking apart from an appeal to an authority. So the issue is not if you do, but the issue is what do you appeal to? And as I said, the man of this world appeals to his own subjective person, to intuition, to reason, to his senses, or a combination of all these, but What makes a man a Christian, a true Christian, is that he does not look to self to justify his beliefs. He does not look to his own intuition. He does not look to his own reason. He does not look to his own senses to recognize what is real and true and beautiful and right. In fact, what marks the Christian man is that in making these decisions at the highest levels as well as how those things filter down and impact the smallest things is that a Christian man locates or recognizes his source of authority for determining reality as outside of himself in God and how God has spoken. Now, when we look at how God has spoken, how God has himself revealed to us what true authority is, we can come up with five testimonies. Let's go through these as it relates to God and his authority. Why does authority belong to God and God alone? Why must we? Why are we obligated? Why is there no other option but to always look to God as the standard and to conform Our convictions, our beliefs, our values, uh, our desires, our actions, our whole worldview to conform it to the standard of God, to conform it to him who is outside of us. 
Well, let me give you five. Number one, God's authority is inescapable. It cannot be denied. It is self-evident, even in God's own names, that he is the one who has ultimate authority. He has ultimate authority because of the fact that he is God. And you do, you look at those names, you look at names like Elohim and El Shaddai and Adonai and Yahweh. And all of these names give testimony to the fact that, that God's authority is inescapable. You cannot deny it. You cannot subvert it. You cannot pretend it's not there. It is. You look at the ways that God reveals himself to us through qualities and how he has defined himself as omnipotent and omniscient, omnipresent, immutable, how he is self-sufficient, eternal, majestic, how he is inscrutable, how he is a God of wrath, how he is a God of righteousness. And all of those testimonies, those qualities, and all of those names show that it is simply self-evident that God must be the ultimate authority. Romans 11 verses 33 to 36 says this, Oh, the depth and the riches, both of the knowledge and wisdom of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Now what is interesting, and this has existed in, in the church and in the, in the culture, Western culture for some time already, there is this idea, this concerted effort actually, to separate God's authority from his love and benevolence. As if to say those two things are mutually exclusive. That if God truly is a God of love, if he is a kind God, then that somehow means he doesn't have authority. His sovereignty must be limited in some way. In fact, you even just look at the picture of the raised fist, and like I said, the the cry against power structures in our culture today, and that raised fist ultimately is a, a, a rebellion against God and the concept of him as having power. But we must not separate God's ultimate authority from his love and his benevolence. Harry Blameyers wrote this, and this was back in the 60s. He said, For the task of reestablishing the notion of God's authority is obstructed not only by the current deprecation of authority itself, but also by a false pre-established picture of God found even within the church. Certainly, the church has preserved the concept of a loving God, a merciful God, a compassionate God, but have Christians generally themselves any vivid sense of God's power and his dominion? Do we, when we worship God or when we reflect upon his nature, catch a clear echo of his resounding and indomitable majesty? 
Are we inwardly and vitally aware of that tremendousness before which all the greatest achievements of human civilization shrink into insignificance? It cannot be denied that this is the God we are supposed to worship, not just a companionable God who is to be sidled up to and nestled against, but an awesome God before whom the worshiper prostrates himself, a wrathful God whose raised right arm can shake the universe. God's authority is undeniable. Next, God's authority is exclusive. It is not equaled by anyone. God's authority is exclusive. It is not equaled. Jude 25 says this, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. Second Chronicles 20, verse 6 says this, power and might are in your hand so that no one can stand against you. You see, there is no one else. There is no one comparable. And, and no one contributes to God's authority. No one accredits it. No one certifies it. No one delegates authority to him. There's, there's no impersonal law or force that delegates authority to God or ascribes him authority. He possesses it and no one else does. And any other authority that does exist, any other authority that, that exists, and there are others, all of them, all of them, are all secondary and tertiary in nature, and they only exist because God delegates to them a tiny portion of his authority. You see that with Jesus before Pilate in John 19, just a little bit after that statement where Pilate says, what is truth? A conversation ensues beyond that, and at one point, Pilate comes back into the praetorium again and says to Jesus, where are you from? And Jesus gives no answer. And so Pilate says to him, you do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and I have the authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. God's authority is exclusive. It cannot be equaled. Number three, God's authority is absolute. It cannot be scrutinized. It cannot be tested. It cannot be put under the the microscope, the magnifying glass. Isaiah 40 verse 28 says this, Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become tired or weary? His understanding is inscrutable. It can't be studied. It can't be examined. Psalm 147 verse 5 says, Great is the Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. There are, in the end, anyway, there are no means or methods or principles which could even be applied in in which to scrutinize or appraise God's authority. It cannot be put to the test. And it is the height of man's arrogance to think that he can take either God or God's word and submit it to scrutiny, to put God in the dock, to question God as if he is on the stand That is arrogance. 
John Frame said this, God will not be tested as if there were any authority higher than himself. His word is not subject to evaluation by human standards. It is not doubtful or disputable. R.C. Sproul puts it this way, the very word authority has within it the word author. An author is someone who possesses a particular work. Insofar as God is the foundation of all authority, he exercises that foundation because he is the author and the owner of his creation. He is the foundation upon which all other authority stands or falls. Number four, God's authority is total. It cannot be secluded. It cannot be compartmentalized. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 4, and this is a text that we'll study in great depth later on, but it says this, we are destroying speculations in every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Indeed, all truth belongs to God. All truth is God's truth. It belongs to him, not to us. It belongs to him because he is the determiner of all reality. Not just sacred reality, but all reality. All reality is indeed sacred because it is determined and upheld by him. Therefore, we cannot relegate God to Sundays and keep Mondays through Saturdays in our own hands. We, We cannot say God is in charge of the sacred and we are in charge of the secular. Does not work. Abraham Kuyper expressed this very, very well when he said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Not a square inch, not one atom is outside of his possession. It all belongs to him and his authority in determining reality as it relates to that atom, as it relates to that square inch, belongs fully in his hands. And so our relationship to that square inch, our relationship to that atom is under God's authority. Number five, God's authority, and this is so very important, God's authority is revealed. God's authority is revealed, it is declared, it it cannot be silenced. And this is so very important. You see, you could say that, well, many people may agree with the first four statements religiously. And then say, well, even though God has all the authority, I still have to be the one to, 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 to find it. I have to be the one to bring it down from heaven to earth. And I can do that through my intuition. I can do that through my reason. I can do that through my senses. But here is what changes it all. This fifth testimony is this. God's authority is revealed. It is revealed. It is not still up there in heaven waiting for some expedition that will discover it and bring it down to man. God's authority is revealed. I like what Isaiah records in Isaiah 45 verse 19 where Yahweh says, I have not spoken in secret in some dark land. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in a waste place. I, the Lord, speak righteousness, declaring, declaring things that are Upright. 
And we see that comes into a climax in the person of Jesus, whose very title is the Word of God, and whose very mission was to interpret God to us. No man has ever seen God in his glory, but Jesus has exegeted him to us. And in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, we read this, God, after he spoke long ago in the Father's to the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. He has spoken. And of course, what he has spoken through his son was then captured by the son's authorized apostles and recorded in this book. God has spoken. And this book is what now mediates God's authority to us. And so when we say we are looking for an authority to justify our beliefs, we are looking for the standard to which to conform our understanding, our views of right and wrong and good and and evil and and, and truth and error and, and beauty and ugliness. That standard is found in God and that standard has been revealed to us in his word. That is where the authority is located, and that is what allows us to say, Sola Scriptura, God's Word alone. Again, Harry Blameyer says this to think Christianly is to think in terms of revelation. Let's stop there for just a moment. We're talking in this year on the Christian mind, and Blameyer has it right here. To use your Christian mind, to use the mind that God has given to you means to think in terms of revelation. For the secularist, Blamar says, God and theology are the playthings of the mind. But for the Christian, God is real and Christian theology describes his truth revealed to us. For the secular mind, religion is essentially a matter of theory. For the Christian mind, Christianity is a matter of acts and facts. The facts and acts, which are the basis of our faith, are recorded in the Bible. Or the words of J.I. Packer who says this, and it's a little bit of a long quote, but it's good. He says this, the gospel is a message that tells us that it is useless to seek the truth about God by speculation. And it comes to us as a command to stop speculating and to put faith in what God has said simply on the grounds that it is he, the God of truth, who has said it. The gospel, in other words, repudiates absolutely the authority of reason and demands implicit subjection to God's revealed truth. Well, let's... Go now to the response. How do we respond to all of this? Let me give you a series of questions as we close. Number one, do you think according to God's authority? Is God's authority the standard to which you conform your thoughts, your desires? Your convictions, your beliefs, your doctrines, your whole worldview, your attitude, the way you build your relationships, 
how you do your work. Is, is it God's authority that, that, that consumes you? That, that what you think and, and how you think and why you think, that all has to in some way and increasingly so be conformed to the standard of God's authority. Do you think according to God's authority? And again, I've said it. It's one thing just to be conscious of your thoughts. All of us here are conscious of that. We think, therefore we are. But think the next line of reasoning. Think that second order kind of thinking. To be aware of how you justify what you think. Go to that level. And until you do, you will not grow as you should. It's by analyzing your thoughts and seeking to make those thoughts conform to the standard of God's authority, to recognize him as the determiner of reality. It is only when you think intentionally that way that your thoughts will will increasingly transform you. And you'll fulfill Romans 12 to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Think about how you justify your thoughts. And let me tell you this, the, the, the more you refuse to do so is, is the degree to which you'll constantly be falling into snares here and there and everywhere. You will not be ready. Your thoughts will be conformed to some other authority. Number two, do you embrace the doctrine of God's authority? And embrace it, not just gritting your teeth and saying, I can't deny it. No, but do you embrace it? Do you really believe? Have you really submitted and embraced the the, the truth that God has the indisputable right to determine for you what to think and how to think it? Or when I say that statement, is there a tone of rebellion in your response? How dare God do that? To determine what I should think? To determine how I should think? Who gave him that right? It's the response of many. Many professing Christians, but the reality is indisputable. God has that authority. And there's no sense kicking against the goads. You will experience freedom and liberty by submitting to that reality and embracing it. It will become sweet. Do you embrace the doctrine of God's indisputable authority? Again, Blamar says this, God is not the bolsterer of our human wisdom, the buttress of our self-sufficiency. He is the despoiler of our human self-reliance. His name does not head the list of contributors to the fund for extending our empire of mastery. Rather, his signature seals the death warrant of our egotism. You get that? You embrace that? You come to love that? And you will be transformed. Three, do you openly appeal to God's authority. Hey, we've been told by the culture that we have to keep God out of things. We have to be neutral. There's no neutrality. You always locate authority somewhere. And so, to keep God out of the discussion, whether it's politics, whether it's about the climate, whether it's about 
work or relationships to keep God out of it is implicitly to locate uh, authority in someone or something other than God. Or we've been told, you know what, you can't, you can't claim the Bible as justification for your theology. You have to look at something else that'll justify your view, that will support your view. Otherwise, it's called circular reason. We've heard that all before. But let me tell you, the moment you give in to that, the moment that you are embarrassed about citing the Bible is the moment you acquiesce to placing authority in some other source. Do not answer, do not interact with the fool according to his folly. And what is his folly? He is right in his own eyes. Authority is placed in his own senses, in his own intuition, in his own reason. Don't do that. Let us not be ashamed to cite the Bible. Let us not be ashamed to keep God in the discussion. Let us recover the courage to admit and assert a biblical worldview which says there is no other ultimate reality. Why would I want to deny it? Francis Schaeffer said this, It is not too strong to say that we are at war and there are no neutral parties in the struggle. One either confesses that God is the final authority or one confesses that Caesar is Lord. Finally, Do you take refuge in God's authority? Refuge. Do you rejoice? In Proverbs 14, 26 to 27, it says, In the fear of the Lord there is strong confidence, and his children will have refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may avoid the snares of death. You know, it is so tremendously liberating to recognize that the truth does belong to God and that it is his to avenge those who refuse to accept it. It's so refreshing to to leave it in God's hands. Yes, we are to be faithful in the application and proclamation of truth, but we leave the rest to God and we rest in it and know that not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. Why should we fear? Do you rejoice in God's authority? Very beginning, we sang how firm a foundation. I want to close with the first stanza. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? Our Heavenly Father, we come before you as the ultimate authority. We confess to you that your authority is inescapable. It is incomparable. Your word testifies that it cannot be compartmentalized. Your word testifies that you do not share it with someone else, even though you may delegate. Your word testifies that you have revealed it in your word. As we have meditated upon these truths this evening, we pray that you would do a great work in our minds to help us think that second line of thinking where we are able to recognize what authority we appeal to in the establishment of our, our, of our convictions and, and, our, and our thoughts and our attitudes 
and our actions and that you would convict us where we have placed that authority in some object that does not deserve it. And instead, Father, that you would graciously draw our affections to you so that we would rejoice and take great courage in always, openly, boldly, using you as the standard, what you have said, and allowing that to conform our whole way of viewing ourselves, viewing the world, viewing you. Do that work in our lives, we pray. Amen.